first of all, I would like to thank uh, Kevin Tracy and uh, Christendom College for the invitation that has been made to me to come here. For me, it's an honor. Uh, uh, thank you so much. Uh, it's uh, an opportunity uh, that I that I really appreciate. So. Um, how did I become interested in the art of translation? Uh, some years ago, uh, I tried to translate, uh, together with a colleague, the Gospel of John into French. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. It lasted uh, one year, a full one year. Finally, the, the translation itself is only in academia.edu, but I, it wasn't uh, published. But for me, uh, it was very interesting because I could see all the kind of problems that you could face when you are translating. And especially with a text like the Gospel of John, which is uh, uh, an extremely difficult text to translate. Apparently, it's very easy. And in reality, it is <coughs> extremely difficult. You always have the impression when you are dealing with the Gospel of John that you are just uh, pulling a drawer. You put your hand inside and you see that there is, uh, there is a top. But if you push a little bit, there is something else behind. So it's always like that. So when you decide to, you take the first, the second word of the Gospel of John, enarche, in the beginning. Is it in the beginning? Is it in the principle? Is it in the beginning and the principle? It, there, there, there is a lot behind it. So, for instance, uh, there has been a full school of thought uh, that has gone on uh, since, ever since uh, origin uh, that understands that enarche uh, and hologos, in the beginning was the word, they understand enarche like not only in the beginning, in the beginning from the point of view of the beginning the absolute beginning, but uh, also the idea that it's in the principle. And uh, uh, um, there is a, um, uh, John Scott uh, Eriogena who says that uh, uh, he, he explains it away in Latin saying, axia perte diceret in patre subsistit filius. It is as if he was saying uh, more clearly that in the Father, the Son is subsisting. So, enarche, the principle, the beginning, in the beginning was the Word. In the Father, the Son was subsisting. You see, uh, because arche in Greek means both. It means principle, but it also means, um, it means a beginning, but it also means principle. And for instance, when we, we, when we look at the translation of uh, Jerome, we have in principio erat verbum, in principio. So he has translated in principio instead of in initio. You know that before Jerome, before the Vulgate, there was a translation in Latin. The first Latin translation of the Bible was uh, the translation of um, the Vetus Latina. It was first made in Africa. And there, uh, in some versions of that translation, that first translation, it was written in initio. So in initio, it's really only in the beginning. But when uh, Jerome uh, chooses 
the translation in principio. So he translates, he translates much more. He's opening the drawer, he sees the first space, and then he sees what is behind. Uh, and it's both, in principio, it's both at the beginning and in the principle. Um, we, so let us go on with, um, we, let us start with the, with the lecture. Um, so there are two kinds of translations, two main kinds of translations. You could have translations that are insisting on the source, and you could have translations that are insisting on the target. Uh, a translation that is close to the source uh, will be called the source language focused translation, formal equivalence, word-to-word -word translation. It will be a literal translation. Uh, a translation that is focused on the target, it, it will have uh, a, dyna a dynamic equivalence, it will be a sense-to-sense -sense translation. And all the translations are moving between these two poles. Either it is too literal or it is too dynamic. And you have to find a balance in order to translate accurately without, uh, without uh, how can I put it, without uh, uh, corrupting the target language. So really now I would need the what happens with the... He's in the middle of saying... He's that. in the middle of... Okay. So I would say there are three levels of the original uh, at we, uh, uh, about which we are going to speak. There is the level of the words, the level, uh, the level of the sentence, and the level of the text. And we are going to start with the level of the words. So uh, a major risk uh, with... Um, with translation is to search for a concordance in the target text that would be comparable to that of the source. There are some people who think to translate is just to take a word, you flip-flop it, and then you have the word in the target language. And you do that for each word, and then you have the translation. So there is nothing that is more alien to translation and to translating than to have that idea. So, for instance, you have some Greek words that could be translated uh, by different words into uh, in, 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 in English. If I take, for instance, again, the Gospel of John, we have many times the word lege. So, literally, it is he says. And all the, 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 the two literal translations will always translate as he says. But sometimes it is to say, sometimes it is to ask, sometimes it is to add. Uh, we could have many other uh, uh, translation, several translations for a single word. And the other way around, uh, one and the same English word might correspond to two distinct words in the Greek. Um, Saint Jerome was a, a great uh, admirer of uh, Kikero. And we have the first, the first ever text that speaks about the theory of translation has been written by uh, Kikero. And in that, uh, in that uh, major text where he, he, he says what, what should be the, the art of translation, Kikero says that when we are translating, we should not give 
in the, tar in the target text an equivalent number of the source text, but rather an equivalent weight. So he says in Latin, non ad numerare sed tamquam appendere. So if I have a text in Greek or in Latin or in whatever language, I'm not going to give to that text the same number of words, the same numerical equivalence, but I will have to weight the text and to, to make sure that in my, in my translation I get the same weight. Sometimes there are expressions that have a particular weight in the original language and if when I translate them too literally I lose that weight, I haven't translated. So, another problem that we have, uh, which is really very important, is the problem of aspect. Um, you know that in English, English is a language where tenses are closely related to time. Okay? So, I go now, I went, I will go. Okay? We have uh, each time is closely related uh, each tense, sorry, is closely related to time, to a chronology. In Greek, we have a different situation. Um, in most of the cases, in most of the cases, what is prominent is what is called aspect. So, um, when you use a verb, for instance, in imperative, you have to ask yourself, if I want to say, to tell someone, run, I have to ask myself in Greek, okay, is he going to run just and immediately reach his uh, point of uh, arrival, or is he going to run for a while? Because according to the situation, I will say two different words, either treche or drame, and it is not the same thing. So, in English I will say run, run forever, or run to the run to the board, okay? But in Greek I will say treche or drame mechri tu toichu or mechri uh, tu pinakos. So, the verb will be different. That means that when I use a verb, uh, well, in, when we are talking about the indicative it's a little bit different. Indicative in principle is closely related to, to time. But when I use a verb in, in, the, other, uh, in the other moods, uh, what is important is the aspect. So, either we consider that the, 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 the action is limited, or we consider that the action is unlimited. That is the key. So, um, sometimes, and spe especially with the Gospel of John, it's very interesting because you see how he uses the tenses, even in the indicative, uh, many times with an aspectual value. So, for instance, sometimes you have a present tense that is equivalent uh, of an imminent future. Uh, I will take. We can plug into your computer now. Okay, good. It just needs to come closer to the. Good. So, um, let us do it. It will be easier for you to follow me because uh, it becomes very abstract. 
we can bring the computer down there. Oh, the, the computer? I can, okay. get, I can give you okay, no a, problem. Um, a So that the only thing we will need to plug it somewhere? Yeah. I Example from Luke. Uh, I will say first in English. Uh, any tree that doesn't make, uh, that doesn't produce a good fruit, uh, will be cut and thrown into the into fire. So <coughs> that in Greek we have ekoptetai is a present tense. Literally in Greek I read. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit, is cut, and is thrown into the fire. So the tense that I have in, in Greek is the present tense. What does Saint Jerome do when he translates? Saint Jerome, in my opinion, the best translation of the New Testament that has ever been done in any language is not okay. Sometimes I have found, uh, strange as it may seem, that some, I'm not saying that it is a perfect translation, there is no such a thing as a perfect translation, but uh, I am only saying that it is much better than anything else that is around. Uh, sometimes I have found, in some specific passages that were difficult, when you have English translations that were translated directly from the Vulgate, they were correct. And English translations that were translated directly from Greek, they were incorrect because they hadn't understood the nuance. Because, of course, uh, someone like Saint Jerome, he had spent uh, half of his life in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, speaking Greek all the time, up to the point that towards the end of his life, when he was preaching in his monastery of uh, Bethlehem, to the monks, he was preaching in Latin, and instead of using sometimes uh, narrative absolutes, he was using a genetic absolute. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Jerome has perfectly noticed the nuance, and he says, Omni seguarbo, non faciens fructum excidetum in idem mitetum. It's a future. Why is a future? So, he has perfectly. Uh, um, given this nuance of imminent future that you have here. Other example, the one who is going to come after me, qui posme ventulus est, 
here you have, in Latin, a, a, a contrasted future, whereas in, in Greek, you have a present tense. Then there is something more subtle, uh, which is the imperfect deconat, the imperfect that, that uh, uh, corresponds to an effort. Um, you have in chapter 6, you remember the scene, so the disciples have gone alone with the, with, in the boat, and Jesus uh, was not with them. They are struggling because there is a tempest in the lake, and uh, suddenly they see Jesus coming, walking on the water, and they think that it is a, 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 a ghost. And, uh, uh, but then it is said, Ethelon un labein auton eisto ployon. Ethelon is an imperfect. They were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the place where they were going to. So the thing is, actually they received him in the boat. But in Greek, I have only an imperfect. This is impossible to render into Latin literally. So Jerome translates by voluent. They, they, they were eager to, or they, they decided to take him in the boat. Another point is the use of brackets for implied content without adding to the text. So, the problem is that languages are different. They have their own, uh, their own way of being, they have their own characteristics. And sometimes there are things that I will say in a language that I won't say in another language. An obvious meaning, which the original language doesn't make explicit, is called an implied content. So there are sometimes implied contents in uh, specific languages. So the golden rule when translating is avoiding two opposite extremes. First extreme is that of making clear in the target language, what is obscure in the original one. If I go too far in that direction, I will come up glossing the text. I am not translating, I am making a gloss. Uh, and the other risk is that of making obscure in the target language what is clear in the original one, because then it would be too literal. I'm going to give immediately an example. You have in the Gospel of John, 1917, Carrying his cross himself, Jesus went out, excelled them, and literally in Greek it is said, Jesus went out unto the place called the skull. So, went out of the city in order to understand what is going on, because he was uh, exceeding the city, he was getting out from the city. So the brackets here enclose not an addition, but a way of making the original meaning explicit in conformity with the nature of the English language. Another point. We are still at the level of the word. We go afterwards to the level of the sentence and to the level of the text. What happens when I have a word in the original that is not Greek? if I'm translating Greek, or that is not Latin, if I'm translating Latin. So, this is what we call a calc. A calc is a term foreign to the vocabulary of a language. For instance, if I say in Arabic, khalas, <coughs> uh, uh, if, if, if I use it in an English text, if I say khalas, 
uh, I have, uh, uh, it's enough. Uh, so, Khalas is uh, a card. This is not English. The card is distinct from a loan word. A loan word is a word that comes from another language, but has, that, has, that has been completely acclimatized over a long time into the new language, such as garage or cassette in English. Uh, those are now English words. But when we take the Gospel of John, at the beginning, in the first chapter, there is a talk about Jesus. And it is said, he is Messias. So the problem is that Messias is as little part of Greek as it is of English. And the Greek text says Messias, which means Christ. So what I cannot do is to translate into English the Messiah, which means Christ, because Messiah is an English word, whereas Messias isn't. So uh, if I want really to produce into the English the same effect as I have into the original, uh, I need to keep the effect of strangeness using a form such as Messias in italics. Uh, however, if I have a word like Vigmos, uh, I don't know in English, but certainly in French, you have some translations where the word is not translated. And you, you have Thomas, who was called Didim. What is Didim or Didimos? Didimos means twin in, uh, in, in Greek. It's perfectly Greek. So it should be translated as twin. And this is the word Thomas. What Thomas means is, uh, is uh, uh, twin. So, another point. And we come to uh, the problems that we find with the text of the Gospel of John, uh, the drawer. You have many times a sensus altior, a, a, a higher meaning in the text. <coughs> and many times in the translations, this higher meaning is just avoided and uh, doesn't appear. Um, it's the phenomenon of double meanings. Over and beyond the author's intention, the interpretative tradition can help enrich the text. Um, Saint uh, Gregorius Magnus used to say, Divina eloquia cum traditione crescent. So the divine words grow up with tradition. I talked already about uh, Arche, so I am not going to, to give you again the same example that I took at the beginning. But you see how you have here a, a, a first level, which will be in the beginning, and the sensus altior, a higher level, in the principle. So the problem is, how can I translate? Because if I translate, in the beginning was the word, I don't translate the higher meaning. If I translate, in the principle was the word, I translate the higher meaning, but I don't translate the obvious meaning. So, uh, this is our difficulty. I mean, we are, we are changing the rules when we are going from one language to another. So, I was in, within the rules of Greek, and now I have to be in the rules of, of English. How can I translate? There is a solution. There are two solutions, amplification and renunciation. Amplification. I say something more. In the beginning, in the principle was the word. Renunciation of the secondary meaning. In the beginning was the word. 
In any case, a translation note should point out the existence of the meaning that the translator did not think he or she should keep. My opinion, in such a text as uh, the Gospel of St. John, it's very important to keep this solution. Okay, I am adding some words, but the meaning is there in the text. And saying that, I am saying the whole thing that the text says. Otherwise, I am, I am stealing from, from the reader a very important part of the meaning. Another point, and very important, preserving Christian vocabulary. We have sometimes some people who translate uh, the New Testament, and they want to reach the original meaning, and uh, they will translate, for instance, baptisma by immersion, instead of translating it by baptism. Because it is true that baptisma means immersion in Greek. However, biblical vocabulary penetrated the modern Western languages. Some words have lost their original image. Some words carry a long history in the target language. In the original text, sometimes you have neologism. The word baptism, the first time it appears, it appears in the Gospels. So you have the, it's, it's crystal clear because you have the, the root, baptizo, baptizo, so baptizo is a very common word to, to immerse. Uh, you have, uh, you have the word baptises that appears in Flavius Josephus, but baptisma appears first in the uh, New Testament. Um, sometimes also you have some semantic expansions, the word pneuma. Pneuma is a word that clearly exists in Greek, in Greek before the New Testament. It means a kind of a breeze or but with the meaning of spirit, this is a, a semantic expansion that occurs within the New Testament. Or Christos, which means no, uh, anointed, the anointed one. And then within the New Testament, it is the Christ. I mean, it gets a new meaning. Can we translate these words without taking Christian tradition into account? Could we translate baptism? by immersion, pneuma by breath or blow, and Christos only by anointed? Problem. A text can never be dissociated from its hermeneutical context. The context of the New Testament, it's the church. If I want to, to say, who has edited the New Testament? Many times I, I ask that question. You, you have 27 books within the New Testament and most of them from different authors. Uh, who has put together all these texts? Who has made the selection? Who is the editor? The church. The church is the editor of the New Testament. So this is the hermeneutical context of the New Testament. So a then there is another problem. A neologism has its full strength, the full strength of its image, only at the moment of its, of its lexical creation. If I take the word character, in Greek, character, character. So, it has a suffix, which is the suffix ter, which is a suffix of instrument. And at the beginning, it meant uh, what you use to stamp. A stamp, but the instrument to stamp. And uh, very soon, it has meant the result of the stamping, and then, 
you go to the meaning of character. But the full strength of the image is there just at the moment when the word is coined. So I'm going I'm going on with the idea of shall we translate baptisma by immersion or by baptism. Okay? We have to distinguish between two things, figure of speech and designation. The designation is the thing that is denoted when I say, uh, I don't know, if I say uh, computer, the word computer has a designation. The designation of computer is this, okay? I, I, I refer to something, to an idea or to an object, I refer to something. But then you have the image, okay? Sometimes a word has an image, like baptisma, it's the immersion, the beginning, so the, the image of the word is to immerse someone into the water. So if the original word's image does not blur the designation, it is legitimate to preserve an early figure of speech. But if an original image has become integrated into the lexicon, like for instance baptism, the decision to keep the image, so to say immersion, to the detriment of the designation, baptism, betrays the meaning. And I have proof for that. If I want now, let us take the, the other way around. Let us try to translate baptism into ancient Greek. I have only one word, baptism. You see? So it's clear that baptism means baptism. The only thing is that baptism means baptism and something else. That's the difference. Greek means a little more. <laughs> so if a neologism that has become frequent in a language loses its newness, it sheds its lexical iconicity. The direct designation overrides the indirect one of the figure of speech. So the signifier baptisma, so word baptisma, express originally the reality of immersion. It designated right from the beginning what we call baptism in English. So sometimes we could have some text within the New Testament where the image matters. I am talking about baptisma, uh, but for instance, you have some text of St. Paul where, where it is said, uh, if we are uh, uh, immersed with him into his, uh, in, into his uh, death, we will resurrect with him, and then there you, you, you see appearing the, the word baptisma. So then it becomes very, very important to keep the image. So we have a solution. It is too amplified, and we will say the immersion of baptism. But in any case, I cannot, I cannot uh, uh, avoid translating through baptism, because this is what it means. Another point, the respect for figures of speech. I can say Alexander's teacher, and I can say Plato's disciple, and it designates the same personality. We are talking about Aristotle. So, but we have, we are not saying the same thing at the, at the same time. Um, if I say Alexander's teacher, I am talking about Aristotle through a specific aspect of this philosopher. And if I say Plato's disciple, I, I am I'm going to <coughs> underline another aspect of this philosopher. So, 
the connotation and finally the meaning will not be exactly the same. So this is why it's very important when translating to respect the figure of speech. I cannot do away with the figure of speech when translating. The figures of speech are very important. I will give an example. In the text about the passion, in the Gospel of John, you have two verbs that are very important. The verb teleo and the verb telero. And unfortunately, many times in Latin in English, they are translated as fulfilling. But it is not the same thing. Teleo means to be accomplished, to be completed. Plero means to be fulfilled. I, I would use plero when I want to, uh, to fill, it, fill a cup. Okay? So you have one of the, what I have read many times the New Testament in Greek. And there are some pages that uh, strike you when you read them into, into the original. And one of the things that has struck me more reading them into the original is the tete style. Everything is accomplished. Okay? In English, everything, everything is accomplished. In Greek, tete style. It's very, very powerful. So, uh, Jerome translate, translates consumatumest. So, tete style, literally, it means completion. It is, it is completed. Okay? It has been completed. I need several words to, to translate that. But in Greek it is tetelestai. And just afterwards, I have teleiothetikagabe, in order to accomplish the scripture. So it's very important that we keep the same verb in English. Because tetelestai and teleiothe relate to the same verb in Greek. And also because just afterwards, in a completely different context, we have in order to fulfill the scripture. So I have a different image. I am not saying the same thing when I say it is accomplished and when I say to fulfill. Those are two different things. So we have talked about words. Now we are going to talk about sentence. That's a, a difficult part. I know that uh, many times when I ask people, what do you think about the literary value of the Gospels? Everybody agrees that the Gospels, from the context of the contents, is the most sublime text that we could have. But, but that's not my question. What do you think about the poetry of the Gospel, about, about the, the literary, uh, the, the, the beauty of, of the text? And Many times people tell me, well, I don't feel that it is a text from the literary point of view that is amazing. Uh, the contents are sublime, but from the literary point of view, okay, when we read them in Greek, it's a different story. They are really amazing. And we lose a lot just because of word order. <coughs> um, we have a problem, and it is that Greek, because it has endings, cases, is a language that is very, very flexible. I could put at the beginning whatever I want. Uh, in English, I can't do that. So, um, we have in any language a neutral order of words. He bought a good book. And we have variations that indicate a particular intention. 
if I say, for instance, in English, a good book, he bought. Okay, there is an emphasis in the, a good book. And these variations uh, show the author's style many times. So we have two extremes. First extreme is to transpose the original contours into a flat translation. This is most of English translations of, of, of the New Testament are flat translations. They are exact. They give you the contents, but they don't give you the... They are in black and white. They are not in full colors. That's the problem. So, another, uh, another extreme is uh, artificially following the order of the words in the source text every time the English language allows it. But the problem is that uh, English is not Greek. It has a different uh, genius, a different, uh, 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 it follows different rules. Well, let us take uh, John 1, 6. Here, the text, you have the, the, the Greek verb at the beginning. And it's normal. So uh, uh, there is no special emphasis in this sentence in Greek. The verb gates, as it is as, as the Latin is based on case endings, Latin sentences are capable of remarkable malleability. And Jerome could opt in his translation for a general fidelity to the order of the Greek words without upsetting the genius of the Latin. He has written once, St. Jerome, in Scripturis Santis et verborum ordo mysterium est. In the Holy Scriptures, even the order of the words harbors a mystery. Believe me, it harbors a mystery. There is a lot to be done in improving uh, the extant translations. I will give you an example. If I take the sentence, and Barabbas Lestes. Barabbas was a thief. Uh, we don't say thief in, in, in he was a robber. Barabbas was a robber. Okay. So here I have a perfect, uh, a neutral order. I have, for these kind of sentences, I have the verb at the beginning, a verb uh, uh, in, the, in, in the past tense, then I have the subject, Barabbas, and then I have the predicate. The normal word order uh, for uh, the first verse of the Gospel of John would have been kai en kologos theos. And the famous sentence that is translated usually by, and the word was God. But the problem is that it is not written en kologos theos. What is written is kai theos and Colos. Something completely <laughs> different. And Jerome has preserved that, translating a Deus et word. We have an exceptional first place of the predicament. I have gone through all the Gospel of John looking at these kind of sentences. And I have found that it's very, very rare to have this kind of uh, word order. Modern Western languages refuse what was possible with Latin. Because word order in English is the foundation for the meaning of the sentences. I cannot just say either it is the cat who eats the mouse or the mouse who eats the cat. I mean, I, can, I cannot play with the order of the words. 
Unless one opts for a syntax foreign to the present-day language, Jerome's principle is inapplicable without profound modification. But there is a possibility. There is a possibility of modifying this principle. So, here, what is important is the theos. Theos, it's, it has all the light. It's in full color in this sentence. Theos This is what he's saying. Theos So, we have the possibility of servile uh, imitation of the order of biblical words and to, to get into a flat translation, and the word was God. Okay. Or we can emphasize the predicative. He was God, the word. And the word was truly God. This is what he said in the original. Not the flat translation that we have here. So we go on, and now we are at the level of the text and of the work. Something interesting is the semiotization. You have a textual unity for each biblical book. And you need to respect the semioticized words. What does it mean, semiotization? It means that the word, the word keeps its meaning, but it becomes a sign. Okay? I have a, a very beautiful example that I like very much is uh, when, uh, when you take the Gospel of John, when uh, St. Peter is in the courtyard, uh, close to the, to, the, to the fire, and he's about to deny Jesus for three times, you have a rail word there, Antakya, so a charcoal fire, which is not a, a very common word in Greek. Fact I have read many things in Greek, but I have found these words just there. And in another place of the Gospel of John, chapter 21, when uh, uh, Jesus appears another time on the shore of, of the Lake of Galilee, and uh, so uh, Peter has made an incredible, uh, uh, has caught many fishes, and he comes to the shore, and there uh, he sees that there is a charcoal fire. So you see, this is semitization. In, this, in, in a movie, it could be fantastic. You, you have a, a zoom on the fire, <laughs> on the charcoal fire, and then another zoom on the same charcoal fire. You deny, and you are going to recognize three times that you are the Lord. Okay, you see, there is, the, it's, it's very, 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 very powerful. There is something which is very important and that we, I haven't found uh, anything like that in, 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 the, in the English or French or any other language translations of the Gospels. At the very beginning, in the first chapter of uh, the Gospel of John, you have different ways of introducing the words of someone, someone who is going to speak. So, um, and you have a way which is very solemn, and he asked and he told the king, or and he answered and he told the king. Uh, and this appears each time when there is a tension in the dialogue that is intensified, or when, it, when there is a solemn affirmation that is spoken. These introductory formulae are not interchangeable. So it's important, unfortunately, many times in English translations, you have, and he asked him, or and he answered him. And we don't see that there is a, a special way of introducing 
the words that are going to come afterwards that uh, is specific and that has its, its weight. Again, we are in the black and white instead of being in full color. In the chapter one, in chapter one, we have a close interrogation about John's identity. There are some emissaries who come from Jerusalem, and there is a crescendo in the phrases that introduce the emiss emissaries' questions. And then the final interrogation, So at the end, tell us, who are you? And then uh, you have the effie of uh, John the Baptist. He declared, uh, and then he, he says who, who he is. This last formula peppers the fourth gospel at all the points in the text where a statement has particular weight. So there is a need of an equivalent marker in the English. It could be, they questioned him and said. And each time I will see this, they questioned him and said, I will think, okay, this connects to other places in the text that have a particular weight. So it's important to, to, to get them. Another point is to work by pericopies. You know what, is a, what a pericope is? It's a, a let us say, a passage in the text that has its own unity within the text. So uh, many times uh, the pericopes are the text that is read uh, as the gospel in the mass because it has its own unity. So we have to, to pay attention to word connectors. Word connectors structure the whole of a narrative sequence. And when translating, one has to study the pericope in order to see what is the rhythm of the text. The translation no longer depends on the weight of the words, but on their strategic place in the text. So, for instance, we take the, the text of the Passion. There is a dramatic tension throughout the account of the Passion. And this dramatic tension, you have two key moments in this dramatic tension. One is the first concession of Pilate. Pilate <coughs> uh, gives in to the, to, to the crowd and says, okay, let him be, let he, let he be um, uh, uh, scorched. And then you have the second time, which is the last concession. And he, 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 um, he, he give him to them in order that he would be crucified. And each time you have tote un. Tote un era ben copilatos con Gesù tai masigosen, tote un paredo che nautor autois in asaute. So, when you read as a whole the, 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 the whole passage of the, of, the, of the Passion, you see that there is a tension that is growing, growing, growing. At least in the, in the original text, the tension is growing. You have tote un, and then you have the scorching of Jesus. And then you have the second tote un, and then he's going to be crucified. And then it's this, it, this is the end of the suspense. There is a, an abrupt change in the narrative tempo. So it's very important that in the translation you notice that, because in many English translations you don't notice the main tempo of the narrative of the passion. Another point. It's the graphic layout of the text. So you have to know that for centuries, 
you know the ancient uh, codices. You know everyone knows what is a, what a codex is. The codex is the book, uh, not the scroll, but the book. Okay. So in, the, on, in all the ancient manuscripts, okay, uh, of the Vulgate, the text is presented through small units. Okay. You have like small lines. Okay. Uh, so the layout of the text is according to colla and commata, close and phrase units, following the pattern of the great 4th century manuscripts. So, um, the text is divided into stanzas marked by indented lines, and the first letter, the first letter of which overflows into the margin. So, if we translate a text, trying to look at how the manuscripts of the Vulgate were dividing the text through percola et commata, we, we, we get a, a, a fresh meaning of the text because we can reduce the punctuation to the strict minimum. At the same time, we see where the tradition put the main <coughs> emphasis of the, the main articulations of the text. And we can display it into the target language. Uh, sometimes, for instance, when you take the, the, some letters of St. Paul, you see that the disposition per colla et comata, you have very small lines. Uh, so it, it, it obliges you to read quickly, 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 because, uh, or, or sometimes there are more, there are longer. So you, immediately you perceive the tempo of the text. It's like, uh, it's like music, you see? Uh, you, are, you are really, following the text as if it were uh, a partition of music. Um, just uh, um, to explain what uh, comma and comma is, I found the text of uh, a Greek grammarian who says, comma is the phrasis brachuti noema echusa. A comma is a phrase that has a short meaning, like Dei de cremata, money is needed. But it's a full meaning. Whereas column uh, is just a part of a meaning, like albos tecai homeron echosi. Even if they have homer, okay, I haven't finished my sentence, I need something else, it's a column, it's not a column. <coughs> so these are the main, uh, some, of, some points that seems to me very important to observe when translating uh, a text. I took the example of the Gospel of John because this is what I have translated. Um, I'm ready to answer your questions about uh, the art of translation. Thank you very much.